Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. First, we go to Port Hardy. On the north end of Vancouver Island, that community getting set to lose two of their emergency room doctors. Let's discuss with my guest, Dr. Alex Nateros. He's one of he's an ER doc and a family physician in Port Hardy. Dr. Nateros, thank you very much for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much to you for having me and to your listeners for uh, for hosting us all the way from Vancouver to Port Hardy. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for being here. Let's talk about the situation on the ground here. So there's three ER docs in Port Hardy right now, but you're losing two of them, correct? We actually have four currently. One has uh, said that he's giving up his eMERGE work at the end of March and the other two at the end of June, uh, which is very unfortunate, uh, certainly a, a huge loss for our community and really a need to look for alternative, innovative solutions to our healthcare crisis. Okay, so that'll just leave you. You'll be by yourself then. As of July 1st, uh, as it stands, that's right. So really, I'm calling for for innovation and support from the government. I think it's telling, right? Premier Evie, uh, when he was in his leadership race and, uh, and since, he often spoke about his wife doing her medical training here on the North Island. And yet when we're calling for help in a crisis, he's nowhere to be seen. Wow. Okay. What kind of impact could this have if nothing is done and you're left all alone there, the only ER emergency room doctor in town? What could that mean for healthcare services there? Well, we're fortunate here, Mike. We've got a really good allied support team. I've got a couple of nurse practitioners I work with. I've got a great mental health team as well as registered nurses, licensed practical nurses and paramedics. So really, it's a matter of all hands on deck and ensuring that all of our healthcare workers are working to their full capacity But again, Mike, you can appreciate, I've only got one set of hands. I need more help. I need physician assistance here on the North Island as well as more physicians. Um, I think one of the points, Mike, you can appreciate, I imagine you've got an assistant in your studio. I know Premier Eby and Minister Dix have assistants in their offices. Why am I as a physician not allowed to have an assistant? I need a physician assistant here in BC in Port Hardy to deliver care. Okay, let's talk about that. The physician assistant that you're calling for, those are not allowed in British Columbia right now. Is that right? British Columbia is the only province in Canada not supportive of physician assistants. I was very fortunate to work in Dauphin, Manitoba, about four hours northwest of of Winnipeg, where my grandfather, who himself was a family doctor in Langley, where he was born. And I worked with physician assistants in Dauphin, and they were transformative to the delivery of rural health care. So if they're good enough for the rest of Canada, and if they're good enough for the Canadian military, Mike, they've been working with the military for the past 60 years, including in Esquimalt and Comox. Why are they not good enough for British Columbians? Oh, I think it's a great question. What does a, a physician assistant do? Like what kind of training do they receive and, and what kind of work can they do there? 
For sure. And, and this is a key point is just getting the word out because, uh, again, they're a huge asset to our team and they're proven. Physician assistants have an undergraduate degree, much as I do as a physician, and then they have two additional years of clinical education that's focused. It's in the medical model. They're trained alongside doctors and they become, if you will, the left hand to your right as a practicing physician. I, I was quite interested this morning to read an article by the new green deputy leader, Dr. Gandhi, calling for physician assistants in BC. He's a, a cardiac surgeon and he has worked extensively with physician assistants in his practice and in ORs in the US and around the world. So again, this is a, a solution to a crisis that we have. It's an untapped resource. And I'm saying right now in the North Island, I need it urgently. I have hired a physician assistant who's prepared to relocate to Port Hardy and start work June 1st. I just need the thumbs up from Premier Eby and Minister Dix. Okay, as I understand it, you you are willing to pay the salary of this physician assistant yourself out of your own pocket. Is that right? That's 100% right, Mike. I'm, I'm so clear that this is a tenable and actually cost-effective and efficient solution to delivering care that uh, I know that paying eighty dollars to $100,000 of a salary and benefits out of my pocket will more than pay for itself in increased patients' volume. Plus, Mike, you can appreciate if I'm on call all day, all day, all day, all night, I need to sleep once in a while. And having a physician assistant allows me to sleep and be rested so I can look after patients in clinic, in the hospital, and in the long-term care. Speaking of Dr. Alex Natero, he's an emergency room doctor in Port Hardy on the tip, northern tip of Vancouver Island and set to be the only ER doctor there in a, in a few months. Dr. Natero, Port Hardy, not the only community struggling here with, with a, short, a doctor's shortage and a, a supply crunch here for physicians, especially in the ER. Why, why are your colleagues resigning? Are they, are they just near retirement age? Are they stressed out? Why are they quitting? Great question, Mike. It's it's classic. And I think your listeners can all appreciate this, you know, having come through the COVID pandemic, having seen their nurses and physicians stressed. Um, we've had this really difficult time as healthcare workers, but also when you are in a crunch, and we've been in a crunch in, in a northern community, in a remote community, um, when healthcare workers get, you know, pushed and pushed and pushed, eventually they break. And Unfortunately, we have not had very much support from the Ministry of Health nor the Health Authority here on the north end of Vancouver Island. I'm calling for Premier Eby to step up and put his actions where his words were when he called for support uh, for the North Island, speaking to the, the training that his wife had received as a doctor in Port McNeil. We need his support today. We need Premier Eby to step forth and support the implementation of physician assistance in Port Hardy. What what kind of reaction you're you're speaking out a, a, a very a very effectively I think in a lot of ways you're getting a lot of attention here with your words in the last few days. What kind of reaction have you you received in the community there? We've had really great support. I'm involved with the Rotary community here, and all the business leaders have basically stood up and said, "Well, we're hearing more than we've heard in in years. We need to keep calling and pushing for physician assistance in our community. That makes sense." I met a couple of weeks ago with the mayor and council of Port Hardy. They since released a full uh, letter uh, in support written to Minister Dix calling for the implementation of physician assistance in Port Hardy. Um, I think everyone who's been living here in Port Hardy has seen a relative revolving door of doctors. We have a system currently that uh, relies often on return of service doctors where more or less doctors are voluntold 
that they have to work for a couple of years mm -hmm. before they can go and work wherever they, they want. Um, I'm building a place here in Port Hardy. I'm committed here for the long term. I want to see us build a sustainable healthcare system where patients have a reliable family doctor, have a reliable nurse practitioner, have a reliable healthcare team to provide their care. Mike, as you know, February 1st, we have a new primary care payment model in British Columbia. It's very exciting. Physician assistants are directly uh, envisioned in a model like that. It's team-based care. It's a model that's going to pay family doctors a whole lot more, which is a good thing, of course, but it means as family physicians, we also have to step up and look after patients and be more effective. Physician assistants allow us to do that. Okay, last question for you. We just have a minute left here, Dr. Nutaro. Like, you're talking a lot about these physician assistants. Why not? Couldn't a nurse do some of this work or, or a registered nurse or a licensed practical nurse do the same thing or no? Great question, Mike. We had a, a meeting last week with the Nurse Nurse Practitioner Association of BC, as well as the Canadian Association of Physician Assistants. We were unanimous that we need all hands on deck. It's a slightly different focus and uh, clinicians will understand, but to explain to yourself and your listeners, a physician assistant works under my license as a physician. So the, the physician assistant extends my abilities and my reach. It makes my one set of hands, two sets of hands, or three, whereas a nurse practitioner works independently under their own license. Okay, well, we're following this very closely, to say the least. Thank you for taking the time today. I appreciate it. Very grateful to you, Mike. Have a great day. We were lucky and found our home on a community page, um, but it was still $400 over what we were previously paying, even just from a year ago. We can make our rent payments, we can pay our bills, but that's it. Like, we don't go out to eat, our daughters aren't in any extra curricular activities. We don't really do anything. As sad as that sounds, we just can't afford to. Yeah, that's a common story we hear a lot. That's Amy Libby, a renter in Abbotsford. And in a lot of ways, she can count herself lucky that she's got a place that she and her family can afford without much else, though. A lot of people struggling here to find a decent, affordable place to rent. Check out this new rental building that just went online for applicants to live here. This is a building in East Vancouver on Rupert Street, the uh, development known as the Peak. 52 rental units in there, and there's some attractive rents here. So uh, $1,200 a month for a 460-square-foot studio, up to 3000 a month for a three-bedroom unit uh, at about 1,000 square feet. Now check out how they were swamped here with applications to rent these suites out. 52 suites in the building. They received over 500 applications to rent those suites out. I think it's a good indicator of the crunch out there. And in many ways, I'm surprised he didn't receive more than that. Let's check in with Kit Souter now. He lives in East Van. He's a renter and housing advocate. Kit, thanks for coming on today. Morning, Mike. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks a lot for doing this. So when you see this new building go online and they're swamped with applications to, to rent there, I'm, I'm sure that doesn't surprise you. No, not at all. And uh, my heart goes out to the 450, 490 people who haven't gotten a chance to live there. Um, yeah. When you've only got 52 units in a project like that, uh, it just illustrates how tight things are, right? With that clip from Amy, um, I don't think that there's a lot of people who are comfortably housed who are living in a property that they own or have had a co-op position in for years or decades can even imagine what it's like to be struggling to find a place to live 
and going farther and farther from the place that you work until you're two or three cities away, an hour or more commute. And then when you do finally find a place where you can have a home and a family, you can't afford to do anything except keep the lights on and feed your kids. Um, and it is, it's not good enough. And uh, this project is a really solid project. Um, I think that uh, we wouldn't have seen it succeed if it weren't for the existing uh, low interest loans from BC Housing and the Housing Hub program, um, because they got $21.6 million uh, at low interest to make this possible. And we still saw that the project itself has terracing and cutaways so that there's no light obstruction on the single family homes beside it on a main uh, transportation corridor. Uh, so I imagine that if the city hadn't been interfering in its zoning and permitting on the way the project got built, we could have seen at least a dozen more uh, units in that building at oh. low cost um, for the city. Interesting. Yeah, 52 units there just makes a pretty small dent in the, in the need out there. Let's have a listen to a UBC student Shelby Sender here talking about her search for a decent, affordable place to rent. Let's have a listen. There was one rental listing I talked to a landlord and it was $900, not including some utilities, just to share a bedroom in a basement with someone else. And there would be four people in the basement plus two upstairs tenants would use the kitchen. I strongly thought about living in my car as an option. Yeah, I mean, $900 to share a bedroom. Oh my God. That's uh, that's pretty. Uh, a lot of people jump at that though for nine hundred bucks when the need is out there that's so bad. Speaking to Kit Souter about the rental market out there, like wh- how much have rents gone up? What are you hearing? Yeah, so uh, obviously I keep an eye on this because I'm a renter. Um, for those who don't know, my my wife and I had our kids. She's about to turn three next week. Um, but when she was born, we had been looking for a two bedroom uh, for almost three years. And we didn't find one until she was 22 months old. So we were sleeping on the floor in between our kitchen table and our couch uh, so that our kid could learn how to sleep through the night in a closed, dark bedroom. Um, The difference uh, between the Peak Project and its subsidized uh, rents with that low interest loan from the province and what market rents are showing, uh, I checked live.rent, which uh, tracks uh, rental costs across Canada and North America. Uh, They have a January 2023 Metro Vancouver report that came out um, back on Jan 5th, and they show that the average rent for a studio, remember the 460-square-foot studio in the peak is going for $1,200 per unit. Uh, It's over $2,000 for a studio across the city of Vancouver. And for those uh, three bedrooms, which there's less than 1% of the market that is even three bedrooms, Mike, and less than 1% of rentals in the entire city are available for rent at any given time in Vancouver, right? So we're talking about 1% of 1% of all available units. Average rent is over $4,600 a month for a three-bedroom in the city of Vancouver, whereas at the peak, they're going for 1,050 square feet plus a balcony uh, for 3000 a month. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, I'm not surprised that they have been swamped with applications there at that building. Are you hearing anything about landlords in this market right now, jacking up rents even higher. Like I've heard from people who have said they've applied for a place, they see an ad online, they apply to rent the place, and then get a call back later and saying, well, if you still want it, the rent's going up another couple of hundred bucks a month if you still want it. Because you get into bidding wars. Have you heard any stories like that? Oh, for sure. All the time. Yeah. From friends, uh, peers, and it's a common discussion on Twitter, Reddit, right? Um, there's just a, there's not enough supply to make yeah. it possible for people to be able to get their rents uh, in check and uh, predictable, 
right? And so the purpose-built rental construction like this project and the building I live in um, are most of the solution to what we need to do to solve this problem. The problem that we have is not enough of the city of Vancouver is zoned for what is often referred to as a one in five, right? Cement base with commercial on the ground and five stories of uh, timber frame construction. Um, you can build them fast. You can build them relatively cheap. And uh, like this project is passive house standards, Mike, right? So clean air, interior heat control built to the global standards for ecological and climate emissions. Um, so it is, it is as good as you can get um, for quality of life inside of the interior structure. But the simple fact of the matter is that uh, multiplex of any size, three stories, six stories, 12 stories, uh, as long as it's not built from uh, slab and rebar, has uh, massively lower embodied emissions than any single family home possibly could, even if they're 50 or 70 years old. And so the thing is, we got to build now, we got to build everywhere, and we got to build all at once so that we can provide the housing that people need at relatively affordable costs and uh, eliminate a bunch of the climate concerns that we have um, you- because housing is the single largest driver. What do you want to see from the provincial government here? We talked on the show last week about the plan that was put in front of Vancouver City Council last week to densify in some of these single-family neighborhoods. What about the province? I mean, this provincial government has talked a lot about housing. You've got this new premier seems to talk about it almost every day. What do you want to see from them? There, there's been talk about the g- provincial government bringing a hammer down on municipalities, get them to build more stuff more quickly. Yeah, so, I mean, as much as I would love to see the provincial government bring a hammer down on a lot of local councils, um, the fact of the matter is that we elect our local governments and give them a mandate to govern. Um, The multiplex discussion that happened over the course of the last 10 days uh, is very much too little too late. It would have been great to have had that multiplex plan put in place in 2005 or 2006 so that families like mine would have had a shot at being able to afford purchasing of a single unit on a single family lot. Uh, 15 years later. The fact of the matter is we barely have the capacity to be able to pencil projects that are four, five, and six stories tall now. Um, And so the reality is that that multiplex project is basically going to be an orphan policy, and the city's going to have to choose to move hard and fast past it or continue to sit on failure. Um, As far as the province is concerned, they've tabled this $2 billion injection into the housing hub program through BC Housing. Um, The premier, who's previously the Attorney General and Housing Minister, sacked the Board of BC Housing. So there's obviously some big moves happening there. Um, And there have been some moves around condo regs and everything else. So I think that the province is moving. I mean, there's a housing announcement once every two weeks from this premier. Um, So I'll look to see what comes next. But uh, I think that everyone can expect that he is keen on this issue and he's appointed uh, Robbie Callon as Minister of Housing for the first time, I think, since the Barrett government in the 70s. So we actually have a dedicated minister with a dedicated ministry instead of someone doing it off the side of their desk. So okay. I think that the province is moving hard, and it's up to the courage of mayors and councils to actually put their money where their mouth is and rezone their cities so that people can do what they want with their properties and have a place to live. All right, we keep talking about the rental crunch out there. Are you looking for a decent, affordable place to rent? What is it like out there? Please call me and let me know what it is like and what you're seeing out there. 604-280-9898. Got several open lines here you'll get through if you call now. 604 
1-800-280-9898, star 9898, toll free on your cell. My guest is Kit Souter. Kit is a renter in East Van. He's a housing advocate. Let's go to your phone calls here. Diana in Abbotsford. Hi, Diana. Hi. Hi, what do you think? Uh, well, in Abbotsford right now, uh, we're renting a property, and, or not like a, an apartment, and we have a two-bedroom, two-bathroom. Uh, kitchen, dining room, living room, uh, two parking spots, and a storage unit, and a wraparound deck. And we're paying 1400 for 1150 square feet. Okay, how long have you lived there? Uh, four years. Are you, are you happy with it? We are, yes. Uh, we are, and the, property, the rental property, uh, people that own it are really, really good. It's weed properties. Hang on to it. That's that's my advice to you, Kit. Like for people who've got a place now that they're happy into, you've got to you've got to hang on to that like it's gold. Yeah, I know. They actually look after that place really, really well too. Like they're it's awesome, and they own several different properties here in Abbotsford. Thank you, Diana. Kit, what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm happy for Diana and her family. Fourteen hundred for eleven fifty sounds pretty great to me. Yeah, Um, and I'd also point out that Abbotsford is one of the better managed cities in the region. Um, they've got a clear line of sight on where they want to build. They've got uh, accessible staff. They've got a mayor and council who talk to their people and answer the media's questions. Um, I don't think that's true for a lot of mayors and councils and their senior planning staff in the rest of Metro Vancouver. Um, and that speaks to some of the big problems we have, right? We've got planning uh, departments that are holding on to dreams from 1973, and uh, they're not reckoning with the fact that we're rapidly approaching the middle of the 21st century. Okay, back to the phone lines. Kay in Vancouver. Hi, Kay. Go ahead. Good morning. I, I want to give you a landlord's point of view on this issue. There is not a lot of incentives from the government to manage a, a rental building. And I'm a property manager of a building in Marple. And rents were frozen for two and a half years during the COVID. However, my operational costs were not frozen. Yeah. And I think the government, in order to get people to want to buy and own rental units, is to give them an incentive. Perhaps the first thing is cut the property tax in half. That's a huge cost. So to complain that there's not enough rentals is, is, and I, you know, Mike, when you said just everyone's jacking the rents, well, this is a business for us landlords. And the only opportunity we have to, to change over a rent is when a tenant moves out. Yeah. So it's a bit unfair, unbalanced. I, I have sympathy for people looking for rentals. In fact, it's this year, uh, last year and this year, People are going door to door to buildings yeah. and, and calling me saying, do you have anything to rent? That's how desperate it is. Oh, I know. Kate, really- th- thank, thank you for the point. Thank you for making those points. Kit, what do you think of that? Yeah, I, I think that's really tough. I don't think you're going to find a lot of renters in British Columbia who have bleeding hearts for landlords. Um, what about the point she made, though, that rents were frozen, but her input costs were not frozen? 100%, Mike. And, and it's a business. And uh, you should identify the upside and downside risks and all of your throughputs for that business when you decide to invest in one. Um, and the simple fact of the matter is, if she's managing uh, 
low rise in Marple. It was probably built half a century ago. Um, and the reality is we are not building in enough places at a big enough scale to make the market function properly, mm. right? And so you've got a massively distorted market in every kind of way. You've got uh, folks who provide services to these rentals on the south side and the west side who basically have a monopoly on the market for HVAC and plumbing and electrical, right? Because they're the only ones who provide service in a small niche network. If you have more buildings being built all the time, you have more trades, you have more laborers, you have more cleaners, all available to move around within the market, and you actually have downside pressures on the cost. Okay. And so you, you, you won't, you we won't get any government you, intervention, or we can have functioning markets. You won't get an argument from me that we need more stuff built, being built. Lindsay in Vancouver. Lindsay, you got 30 seconds here. Oh, hi. Oh, sorry. I'm going to disagree with you. I think that we have enough in the pipeline and we have enough built. The problem is it's not affordable. I have been a renter in Vancouver my entire adult life. And if you look on Craigslist, there's like 2,000 units, but none of them are affordable to the median household income in Vancouver. And if you make less than below, you know, a threshold, you will be housed. But if you make... Um, but you have to make about 120000 uh, to to afford a one-bedroom in Vancouver. Thank you, Lindsay, for the call. Uh, Kit, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it a lot. No worries, Mike. Have a great day. All right. Let's talk about 24 Sussex Drive now, the official residence of the Prime Minister in Ottawa. Currently unoccupied, Justin Trudeau, since he became prime minister, chose not to live there. He currently lives at Rideau Cottage, which is on the grounds of Rideau Hall in Ottawa. He chose not to live in 24 Sussex Drive. Why? Well, because it's because of the condition of the place. They got asbestos in there. We got obsolete wiring. There's been some mice infestations in there. It is a shambles. What are they going to do with it now? Well, the plan's underway here to make some decisions. There's some big decisions going on here now by the National Capital Commission. What will be done with this historic building in our country? Canadians divided on this one now. Check out this new opinion poll from the Angus, Angus Reid. Most Canadians oppose spending up to $38 million to renovate and repair 24 Sussex Drive. Still, 41% believe that we do require an official residence for the Prime Minister. Some people think that the better idea would be to knock it down and start over. Got Stefan Novakovic standing by to discuss this now. Have a listen to Trudeau here commenting on 24 Sussex Drive. Now, he doesn't think he'll ever live there. Have a listen. We are looking into how uh, to maintain that particular piece of infrastructure. I am... Uh, you see yourself living there at any point? No, not really. 
Uh, it's uh, it needs an awful lot of work, and uh, I but think someone's got to make that decision. Right? Somebody does, and we've uh, turned to Maybe experts, you? and we've turned. Well, you know, there's a real challenge in this country of uh, anything that a prime minister decides for uh, you know that they could potentially benefit from. That's one of the reasons why the house has been run into the ground uh, since since the time I lived there. Uh, is that no prime minister ever wanted to spend a penny of taxpayer dollars on upkeeping that house? So I'm fairly resigned to not living in that house for the entire term. Okay, don't forget, he kind of grew up there when uh, Pierre Trudeau was Prime Minister and lived at 24 Sussex Drive. Okay, what do we do now with this building? Do we repair it for tens of millions of dollars? Knock it down, start over? Or maybe just scrap the whole idea of an official residence for the Prime Minister. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Stefan Novakovic. Stefan is a senior editor at Azure Magazine. It's an architecture and design magazine. He's written about 24 Sussex Drive. Stefan, thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Hey, how did this building get in such bad shape? This is this is a really terrible condition here. How did it happen? Well, it's pretty incredible, isn't it? I mean, uh, for starters, it's hard to imagine, you know, other sort of famous residences for the head of state like the White House or 10 Downing Street ever getting into this kind of condition. Um, But it's, first of all, important to understand uh, the difference between 24 Sussex and the White House and Downing Street in that uh, 24 Sussex Drive never served as an office for the prime minister. It was only ever uh, a residence. It was only ever a house. You know, whereas in the White House, if you've seen shows like The West Wing, obviously the president also has his office there, same at 10 Downing Street in the UK. But because 24 Sussex has only ever been just a house, uh, Canadian prime ministers have typically been very, very reluctant to spend any kind of public money on, you know, what would be seen as just renovating their own house. It's sort of against the political culture of the country sort of to show off to that degree. So it's been this really weird situation where I think most Canadians and most prime ministers certainly think that, you know, it's reasonable to have an official residence for the prime minister and that the place should be in pretty decent livable shape. But it's kind of a political hot potato where no no prime minister has wanted to be the one to sort of pull the trigger pull the trigger and spend tens of millions of dollars renovating their own house. Some of the problems that we have there, I mean, this sounds this thing just sounds like a, a total money pit here to try and repair. You've got obsolete mechanical, heating, electrical systems in there. There is asbestos in the home that would need to be repaired. There's been reports of mice. Uh, infesting the the house. I mean, would you say that 24 Sussex Drive right now is, is, is savable, or do you think it's a write-off? They should tear it down and start over. That's a really tough question. Uh, for, for starters, though, I've never seen the place, so it's hard to really know. But, you know, I've seen sort of the clips where Rick Mercer goes in uh, while Paul Martin was prime minister, and the place was already in really bad shape. In this sort of uh, architectural world, What most of us these days believe is that in general, it's preferable to sort of renovate a building when possible, as opposed to tearing it down. And there's two sort of general reasons for that. The first one is that in terms of the sort of the the carbon cost, the environmental footprint of demolishing something and then rebuilding it entirely, almost always tends to be bigger than the carbon footprint of renovation. 
And the second reason is for architectural heritage, you know, especially this is an older building. It was built in the 1860s, so it has some significance. So all things being equal, personally, I think we should renovate it if possible, but it does sound like the place is in really bad shape. And I got to say, like architecturally, you know, it's no masterpiece. So if it's got to <laughs> be torn down, it might have to be torn down. Okay, so you were mentioning sort of the heritage of this building built in the 1860s and the architectural value of it. It looks like a nice place from the outside overlooking the, the river. Do you, but you think it architecturally it's not, not worth saving in terms of its design? No, I think, you know, I think in terms of its architectural design, if it was, you know, any other Ottawa house in that location, I'd say it would be a real tragedy to tear that thing down, even though yeah. it's not, you know, really a truly exceptional building. But the thing about it is that, you know, again, sort of unlike the White House, the House 24 Sussex Drive wasn't built to serve as the residence of the prime minister. You know, it was just some guy's house, basically, back in the 1860s. I think it was some rich fur trader or merchant or something like that. Uh, so it never really had the type of facilities for like hosting state dinners, you know, or having foreign heads of state come over or having big events, which is what most of these types of residences uh, tend to do. So for that reason too, you know, that it's in really bad shape and that it wasn't really, you know, built for this type of purpose, there is an argument to be made for knocking it down. Personally, I think it would be a shame. I think it would be much preferable to keep it if we can. Okay, taking a look at some of the opinion polling on this, a, a lot of Canadians uh, opposed to spending up 36 to $38 million to repair the home. I guess I can understand how people would feel that would not be a wise use of money right now. Uh, on the other hand, there's the argument to, look, let's just knock it down, start over, build a modern home and office for the prime minister where it could be more usable for state dinners and functions and, and that kind of thing. And then there's the, the other argument that maybe we shouldn't have an official residence for the prime minister, period. Like, just scrap the whole concept. Where do you stand on that? Like, I, I think we should have a, an official residence for the prime minister, should we not? I mean, it's a really interesting question. I mean, on some level, culturally, I can see the appeal of the prime minister like just being another person and just having some regular house, maybe living in a condo or something like that, wouldn't that be uh, interesting? But, you know, I think it's not a coincidence that most countries around the world, pretty much every uh, country in the world, has some type of official resident residence for the head of state and, uh, and the head of government in this case, actually. And the reason why we do is because we recognize that there's sort of an intangible political and cultural value in having a venue to host state dinners to do these types of things you know i know a lot of american presidents visited the house uh, pierre trudeau justin's father had meetings with richard nixon there and there's some type of value in that there's some type of value in i think having an official residence and particularly i'd say from an architectural standpoint it will be great to have that as a showcase of Canadian architecture too, whether through a really thoughtful renovation or through tearing the thing down and rebuilding it. But yeah, I think, you know, it's no coincidence 
that most countries have something like this, and Canada should too. Yeah. Stefan, thanks for coming on with your thoughts on it today. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. It's been a pleasure. All right, here we go now with our great debate on the federal government's plan for a just transition. Now, this is a super hot issue in Ottawa right now. The just transition. Ottawa's plan to transition to a low-carbon economy. Wind down oil and gas production. Ramp up climate emission targets. Transition to things like electric vehicles. How will this impact the Canadian economy? The Justin Trudeau government working on this plan. Legislation expected later this year. No firm details released on this plan yet, but there was a leaked 81-page federal briefing memo that set off some rockets next door in Alberta where Premier Danielle Smith says the plan could eliminate thousands of jobs. Have a listen to what she had to say about it here, Danielle Smith. When I hear the words just transition, it signals eliminating jobs. And for Alberta, that is a non-starter. I think it's a big threat. And, and the reason for that is the language that they're using. Just transition is the language that they used when they phased out the coal industry. It is a social justice term. To use that terminology, they're virtue signaling to an extreme base that is openly advocating to shut down oil and natural gas. Okay, let's discuss now with our panel both sides of it for you. Peter McCartney, climate campaigner with the Wilderness Committee. Pleased to welcome him back. Peter, thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. Also on the line, Cody Battershill, founder of Canada Action. It's a group, pro-oil and gas advocacy group. Cody, thank you. Thanks, Mike, and thanks, Peter. Okay, thank you to both of you guys for coming on once again. Peter, let me go to you first. So a just transition. Is this? Do we need a plan like this in Canada right now if we're moving to a low, lower carbon economy? We do need a plan uh, for a just transition because we need to recognize that the world is actively trying to use uh, less and less of the fossil fuels that this country has produced. And so there are tens of thousands of people that work in this industry. And this is about being honest about the realities of what a world that is no longer burning fossil fuels for energy looks like and supporting the workers and communities that are left in the wake of the fossil fuel industry. There are obviously lots of people and lots of places that rely on oil and gas. Um, and But the good news is that there's lots of work to be done. Um, this transition away from fossil fuels is one of the biggest feats that humanity has ever endeavored upon. And so we need people to be building green energy like geothermal, wind and solar. Um, we need people to be working on restoring a lot of the places that the oil and gas industry has impacted so heavily. Um, and so just, that is what the dress transition is about, it's making sure that uh, families are taken care of and communities are able to thrive for the long term once the world has stopped using uh, our oil and gas. And so I don't okay. know how you could be against it. Cody Battershill, what do you think? Well, the reality of energy demand is that Canada is advancing geothermal and wind and the oil and gas industry is a leader in environmental protection spending and decarbonization spending and clean technology spending. But demand for oil and gas is still increasing. And Peter and other environmental protesters have been saying for more than a decade, we need to get off of Canadian oil and gas. The transition has been to supporting other countries like OPEC and Russia. 
letting other countries capitalize selling their oil and gas for the highest, best possible price. And Canada has suffered. Canadian families and communities have suffered. It's not up to Peter or people that don't live in the local communities that are impacted to make these decisions. The federal government said, uh, after looking at the coal, um, there was a just transition task force focused on the future of coal workers and by all, coal workers, and by all accounts, it was a failure. They said we found that Natural Resource Canada and Employment and Social Development Canada were not prepared to support a just transition, and the commissioner. Um, basically said it was a big failure. So we have a lot of work yet to do about the energy transformation. As long as the world needs oil and gas, it should be Canadian full stop. And talking about helping other countries capitalize at our expense is just ridiculous. Peter. So for years, the International Energy Agency um, over-promised on rising demand forecasts for coal, oil, and gas. And now that agency, which is so fundamentally linked to the fossil fuel industry, is predicting a peak in the demand for oil and gas this decade. Um, so this is something we have to talk about right away. And I agree. It's actually it's not up to me. Um, it is up to the communities where they produce this oil and gas, what their future looks like. And we have taken billions in revenue from those communities for decades. And so it's up to the federal and provincial government to support those communities in charting a new path forward that doesn't rely on fossil fuels. And that's exactly what the Just Transition Act is designed to do. Hey, Cody, when you take a look at the federal government's plans here for reducing emissions, uh, this dramatic transformation of the economy moving toward 100% electric vehicles and that kind of thing, obviously there's an economic impact on something like that. Does it not make sense to plan for that? Like, when you hear the federal government saying, well, we want to be there to help displaced workers, maybe with retraining, transition them into cleaner, cleaner energy sectors. Are you buying that or you just you just figure like that's just not going to happen and, and people will just lose their jobs, period? I mean, with what happened with the coal workers, the government itself admitted that their whole just transition planning was a failure. And what we need to be looking at going forward is maximizing the value of our resources or for that fact, for that matter, the value of anything that we produce and we can sell from Canada. That's just smart. The oil and gas industry this year is expected to generate about $60 billion. We can build more hospitals and more schools with that money in addition to the half trillion since the year 2000. Oil and gas demand, the IEA just said, it's going to reach an all-time high this year. Peter and others have been saying for more than a decade, shut down Canadian LNG, shut down Canadian oil. We don't need it because demand's going to peak. Well, demand still is yet to peak. And as long as the world needs it, it should be Canadian. While we advance wind and solar and geothermal, of which the industry is a huge supporter of, we're already decarbonizing, building out carbon capture, investing in clean tech and geothermal and wind. We're a leader in the world in wind energy, uh, top 10. So we've got so much to be proud of, but it should be local communities that drive this, that talk about how we are going to plan for the future, not Ottawa or other places that have never worked in those local areas or those local resources deciding what people are going to do. All right. Talking about Ottawa's plan for a just transition away from oil and gas. My guests are Peter McCartney, Wilderness Committee, Cody Battershill, Canada Action, both sides of it for you. Let's go to your phone calls. Karen in Surrey. Hi, Karen. What do you think? Well, first of all, um, 
the grid, uh, my friend lives in Langley. They live in a large townhouse complex. They went to the township to find out if their whole complex could get air conditioning units. They said the infrastructure cannot handle it. Right now, we have the Netherlands and other countries that are making multi-million dollar deals selling their natural resources. We are losing out as Canadians. I think this, uh, this individual who's there for climate, he needs to listen to the individual that just did a speech on the fact that Great Britain, for example, is 2% of the problem. The majority of the people, the majority of the problem lies with countries that are poverty stricken. The poorest countries in the world are adding to the, uh, the uh, climate problem. And they're not, that's not top of mind for them. So our infrastructure cannot handle uh, electricity, the way that it's being uh, sold to Canadian people right now. And let's look at the mining, uh, the okay. damage to the, yeah, the environment related to the mining of uh, for batteries. It's just insane. Thank you for the call. Peter, what do you say to her? Yeah, so BC Hydro has um, enough power to get us going through the end of the decade for sure. I mean, Site C is uh, coming online for better or worse, and, and we've got more power than we know what to do with. Um, but to, to put this problem onto other countries, I think, is really um, really a problem because Canada is the fourth biggest producer of the fossil fuels that are causing uh, climate change. And so, you know, we have to deal with that. We are, we are massively responsible for this problem. We also have some of the highest per capita emissions in the world because of our massive uh, polluting industry of the oil and gas sector. And so... Um, yeah, Canada needs to, this needs to be a conversation in Canada, and we've set climate commitments for ourselves. We need to make those climate commitments. They matter. Cody, go ahead. You know, Wilderness Committee, Peter, Stand Earth, Greenpeace, they say no to oil, gas, coal. They also say no to nuclear and hydro. And on a previous debate, Peter acknowledged battery storage for wind and renewables and solar is not there yet. We can support a transformation of our energy system as a pragmatic decision to maximize the value of our exports, oil and gas, while advancing Canadian mining and building out more wind and solar, that's okay. We can prepare for that longer-term transformation without the rhetoric, without the inflammatory comments that we've seen that have proven to be false about the end of oil and gas demand and transitioning, as these green groups would like, away from responsibly produced Canadian oil and gas today to OPEC and Russia and Saudi Arabia and these other producers for them to benefit at our expense. It doesn't make any sense. We can do both responsibly, and that starts in local communities acknowledging the reality of energy demand and how the world works. Steve calling in the, from the West End. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Hey, Mike. You know what? I think there needs to be a little more focus on the technology, which we have right now, to take carbon out of fossil fuels. We can refine that out. And what that would do is that would allow us to still use the oil and gas without torpedoing our economy. And at the same time, it gives us a more soft transition where we can get into things that are green, like nuclear energy. It's a situation where that's actually the technology now in nuke energy is so good that it's actually deemed green. Um, we, as far as the other thing about LNG, we should be selling that to the Germans. The Germans will be paying for that LNG factory 
not Canadians, and it's a lot cleaner to burn Canadian LNG okay. than it is their ligamite or whatever they're burning to keep the lights on over there. Okay, Steve, thank you for the call. You know, uh, uh, Peter, I'm curious on your response to that because we hear a lot about carbon capture from the oil and gas sector, especially in Alberta. What's your take on that? Like, can we can we do these, this carbon capture technology? It is magical thinking to think that the oil and gas industry is just going to carbon capture away. It's massive pollution. Um, this technology is still in its infancy. It can't possibly scale on the speed it needs to, and it's extremely expensive. And so we are making some of the most expensive oil and gas in the world even more expensive, which means companies are, or countries aren't going to want to buy it. And it doesn't get rid of the majority of emissions that come from the burning of oil and gas in your cars. So even if we could completely eliminate the carbon emissions from uh, that are produced here in Canada, if we're selling this around the world, it is still creating the climate pollution that is driving the disasters that we see all over the world today. Um, Cody, what do you what do you what do you say to that? Let's get Cody's response here, Cody. Peter is incorrect that Canadian oil and gas is high cost. In fact, it's not. We see Japan and Germany and all these other countries wanting to trade with us because we're a reliable supplier with responsible production who's focused on reducing our footprint. Peter is just just symbolically or ideologically or whatever opposed to oil and gas. If you really want to reduce emissions, if carbon capture could do that, wouldn't you be all about hoping that that works and hoping that that's going to be a success? We are developing technology right now in Canada. We've got some of the world's largest active projects. And I hope that we can continue to export that knowledge and that expertise to export even more Canadian success around the world. We need all of the above. And I am concerned that Peter and Wilderness Committee, they're just opposed to oil and gas from Canada, even if it means it helps other producers. And even if it's not pragmatic or or realistic with what's happening in the world with energy demand. Squeeze in one more call, Chris and Penticton. Chris, you got like 30 seconds here. Go ahead. Oh, okay. I'll be really quick. Firstly, if we're concerned about carbon and it's talking about carbon dioxide, it really infuriates me. Uh, maybe everyone should at least have at least five minutes a day where they don't breathe because we breathe out carbon dioxide. Secondly, I think it's absolutely silly. Use our natural resources, get the revenue so we can go to the green aspect. Uh, okay. We're missing the ball. Thank you for thank you, Chris. Guys, we just have a minute left here, so I'll give you thirty seconds each here to sum up. And Cody, you go first. Go ahead. Well, when we hear just transition from Peter and environmental groups, it's it's apparent why people get upset, and that's because they're talking about shutting down Canadian oil and gas, as we've listened to on this show. Even though demand has never been higher, and the industry is a massive contributor to our national quality of life, we can. We can work through this transformation, maximize the value of our resources, continue to be a leader in wind and hydro and nuclear. We can do all of the above in a way that's not polarized, working together as a country. That's what we need to work on. Peter, 30 seconds. You know, no matter how bad Cody wants it to happen, Canada's resources will not be the uh, the last oil and gas standing. We need to get prepared because we have some of the first resources to go. Um, because nobody is boiling oil out of sand in order to make, um, you know, the, right. the small amount of oil that we're going to need. So we need to get ahead of this. We need to get prepared for it. And that's what the Just Transition Act is all about. 
Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.